Welcome back to Lost in Citations. Today's guest is Dr. Simon Humphreys, also on Citation 7 and Citation 79. Dr. Humphreys, thank you so much for coming back on Lost in Citations. Yeah, thank you for welcoming me back. Yeah, it's it's good to be back. For the people that haven't listened to Citation 7 or 79, do you mind uh, introducing yourself to the newer listeners? Yeah, so I uh, I work at Kansai University and um, I'm a professor of uh, intercultural communication uh, for the undergraduate students, mainly focusing on business communication. And for the graduate school, I do um, both intercultural communication and foreign language education. That's great. And again, for people that haven't listened, please go back. Simon was one of the very first interviews and you also recommended Todd Allen Yep. and a few others and a great friend of the podcast so so thank you for your and i would consider you yeah, a friend you. friend outside of the podcast too so thank you for Definitely, that as well yes. yeah. <laughs> it was it was good to see you in fukuoka as well last year yeah that was fun yeah jelled that yeah. was that was that was a good time good to see everybody um yeah, definitely all right so the the paper that we're going to be discussing today is fluctuations in japanese english majors capacity to speak before during and after studying abroad and your co-authors scott aubrey and jim king jim king has come up on the show multiple times and i also had the pleasure of interviewing him i think chris is going to interview scott aubrey sometime this year Oh, good. Yeah. I think they both work together at uh, APU, perhaps. Okay. Yeah. I actually was just in Singapore at the RELC conference, yeah. and I saw his name on the program, and I was looking forward to, to going up and speaking with him, but I think actually he delivered his online. So okay. I, I've heard a lot about him. I, I hope to run across him. How did, um, how did this paper come together with, with the three of you? So uh, Scott used to be my colleague at uh, Kandai. Okay. Uh, Kansai University before um, he moved to Hong Kong. So um, we were kind of we we kind of shared a Kakenhi project on this. Oh, okay. Um, so unfortunately, because he he left Japan, he had to leave the Kakenhi project because you have to be based in Japan to mm. be like an official kind of um, co-researcher receiving money for it. Um, but we we kept in touch and. Uh, and Jim King, uh, he came to Japan. He was he was invited over by uh, another colleague, Tomoko Yashima, mm. and he came over. And um, so that was how we kind of st started the study. And he he stayed on then as a collaborator as well. So there's a in the uh, the 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 book where I think um, you might have talked to Seiko about the book before, and maybe but maybe to Jim. There's a co-authored chapter in there with Jim where that was also one of the triggers for this study where we did an intervention uh, uh, like breathing and social activities and so on to try and reduce student anxiety. Are you talking about the East, East Asian perspectives? That's the one. On silence yeah. and English language education. Okay, so yeah, yeah that, that intervention study was interesting, if I recall, because weren't you doing some interventions or activities outside the classroom? Like, That's right. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. I was actually reading that recently because it kind of relates to the research. I, I'm 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 researching the effect of silence on teachers. Yeah. And I in the I'm kind of doing a pilot. Well, I did a pilot study on myself, and one of the findings mm -hmm. that I had is that maybe 
with all of the teacher teacher social activities being canceled during the COVID era, I think yes. it did have a negative effect on teachers. And I was kind of making the argument that perhaps we should we should reinstate some of these. I don't know about your university. We used to have welcome parties for the teachers. We had lots of activities throughout the year. And yeah, we we've kind of cut back a lot. So, but we've uh, this week. I mean, the for the listeners, I think this will be played later. But right. we're, we're kind of speaking now at the at, uh, in March, and we've got we, our faculty meetings have been moved online using mm-hmm. Zoom. But for the final faculty meeting, we'll we'll get together face to face on campus, and um, there'll be a, a kind of a farewell party for uh, some of our colleagues as well at, at that. So that'll be that'll be nice. That'll be the first one since uh, COVID hit. The first farewell party, well, the first face to face party since then. And yeah, I I was kind of making the argument that I think it's really important. But what was interesting about that that paper is the findings were a little bit negligible with the student to student outside the classroom activities. Yes, um, which was yeah. kind of interesting. So I I, I, I it was funny when you brought that up. I was just reading that paper the other day. Yeah, to be honest, my my class um, it didn't seem to make a lot of difference. The um, the the interventions actually, yeah, although. Uh, kind of immediately it didn't seem to make a difference although at the end of the year it was interesting because they were the only class from that kind of compulsory class where they they really made a huge effort to say goodbye to me and Mm. um you know like giving me like one of those kind of cards with all the messages on and a photo and everything so so actually it was delayed you know there's a kind of delayed reaction until after the study was finished, because it only lasted for about one semester. Mm. But um, they, there was definitely a very strong uh, bond between me and the students that I, I actually hadn't realized at the time. So, um, yeah, even if you don't notice it with the students, because they might not say it to you in class, it might not be that obvious. Um, deep down, um, I think these kind of activities, they do make a, they do make a difference, yeah. So for people interested, that's um, that's in the book East Asian Perspectives on Silence in English Language Education, and lots of great that man. That's a great book. I, it is. I, yeah, I feel yeah. quite lucky that uh, it was yeah. published around the same time I started getting really interested in this stuff. So I'm interested in your study. Like, so you're you're when you're thinking about silence, you're you're thinking like teachers' reactions to student silence. Is that what it is? Now? So. That was kind of the impetus of it, where before I was, I, I guess I'm looking on the other side of the table where my beginning studies were, it was silence, but I was wondering why the students were silent. Yes. And so that's why it kind of took me down the path of language learning anxiety and these sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but then I, I'm now much more interested in the, the teacher perspective of, right. you know, what the, what the effective, and, and so the way the framework is set up, it you can't limit it to the classroom. Okay. So it's kind of like an ecological systems theory. So mm. the data collection that I did, well, I did, I did a pilot on myself in auto ethnographic yeah. and, and then next year I'll do some case studies with other teachers and see if they have similar or dissimilar findings. And um, so what it is, is, is essentially you, you um, report focal events of when you have an emotional reaction to silence. Okay, and that could happen in the classroom or outside the classroom. Right. So essentially, you say, well, the the this 
the aim of this study is is uh, reactions to student silence, right? Mm. But you don't limit yourself to that. Right. So there were events outside of the classroom as well. And there were events that weren't just with students. So okay. now, but my, my data was limited to that. I'm curious with other people, when I, when I expand the case study to other people, yeah. I'm wondering, and I, and I'd like to try to choose people with different experience levels and different ages and different backgrounds because I'm willing to open up the ecological system to Japanese society. Do That's you know what, what I, mean? I was wondering. Yeah, yeah. I was wondering, like, um, are you are you going to focus on, say, Western teachers, say, in Japan, or are you going to also study um, Japanese teachers, how so they deal with silence? Just just foreign teachers. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, because I'm curious if other people have these emotional reactions to silence outside of the classroom where to be honest, mm. there's a lot of things about Japanese societal silence that is quite comforting yes. that I like. I just yes. don't like it in the language learning classroom. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good point. Yes. Good point. Um, but, but, uh, yeah, there was actually, and we'll get into it in the paper. There, there was a few things in this paper that got me really kind of thinking about stuff in my own research. And, I, and I'm wondering if other, other people will find that as well. So again, the paper that we're going to talk about today is uh, fluctuations in Japanese English majors capacity to speak before, during, and after studying abroad. Now, I think we should start with establishing the terminology. Um, and this, this term capacity to speak, I'm familiar with the term because I read the chapter that we, we talked about, or maybe that yeah. you had two chapters in that book, right? Um, if I recall, I can't remember. So anyway, yes, but, I, I had one which was uh, uh, where Jim Jim King was the lead author, and then one when I was the lead author. So the one we talked about just a, a bit earlier in the podcast is where Jim is the lead author with an intervention, right? And then the one where I'm a lead author is looking at high school students, Japanese high school students, their capacity to speak. Yeah. Okay, so I've read that. I, I I'm familiar with that as well. For for people that maybe haven't read that chapter. Can you go yeah. over this concept of capacity to speak? Yeah, so um, basically, I kind of feel a lot of uh, a lot of research is very much kind of uh, Western focused in a way, uh, focused from like a Western perspective, and and it gets very deeply rooted. And I think willingness to communicate is it, it's a great concept. Willingness to communicate, WTC, mm-hmm. very very powerful. And and I can understand why it's so popular because. Um, it makes sense that the more you actually use the language, you're more likely to get better at speaking. It's kind of quite self-evident in a way. So that I understand why it's very, very popular. And, and for motivation studies as well, it's, it's very, very important. But um, there have been quite a few studies that have shown that they don't really match, like where there might be kind of this high desire to communicate, but... Um, the students might stay silent. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it, th- this happens a lot in Asian context. There's a few Chinese studies in, with Chinese students and a lot of studies with Japanese students where there's this powerful silence. And, um, yeah, a lot of Jim King's research has pointed out about the uh, hypersensitivity to others, like very, very worried about how they might affect their classmates in particular um 
so that's why I felt rather than looking at whether there's this kind of this desire or this volition, this willingness to communicate, to actually shift the focus a little bit to whether uh, students feel they can actually speak. And um, so that's why I kind of created this concept of capacity to speak, uh, CTS. Um, it's not necessarily communicate, but to actually speak, to actually utter something. And um, yeah, the, the the book chapter that that you've read, that what came out from that, that was kind of like uh, we we looked, me and my team, we looked at various factors that might influence students' capacity to speak in the classroom, and we made a, a structural equation model with that, and uh, it actually didn't fit. Um, we had to keep changing it and changing it until it actually, we we until we we had to eliminate some variables until they actually fit. And basically, confidence in, in the classroom was the overriding variable, the strongest one, and also the uh, classroom environment as well. So I'll just be a professional host here. For people that are interested, so that's chapter seven, and it's called Silence in Japanese Classrooms, Activities and Factors in Capacities to Speak English. In the yeah. book, East Asian Perspectives, on silence in English language education. Um, yeah. And then the other, uh, the other chapter was chapter four, and that was silence and anxiety in the English medium classroom of Japanese universities, a longitudinal intervention study. Yeah. So um, anyone who's interested in these concepts or intersecting research areas, highly recommend this, mm -hmm. this book. And um, I've done presentations on uh, silence, and I've, I've tried to recommend this book yeah. to people as well. So I hope people are kind of checking it out. Now, that was kind of my question. Are you, are you the creator of this concept? Yes. Wow. Yes. Yeah. Um, it was basically because I, I, I just felt that WTC couldn't work. So I wanted with with my students. So I felt I needed to, in a way, kind of be a bit less ambitious than willingness to communicate and just look at capacity to speak, whether they can actually speak or not. Yeah. So I think my, my first publication on this was in 2015. I'm very, very slow. I, I don't churn out that many publications. So that I think there's only three uh, CTS publications. There's one in 2015, then the 2021 that you've just mentioned, and now this, uh, this new one uh, in System. It's just come out. All right. So, all right. Again, this paper where you're looking at um, fluctuations in Japanese English majors capacity to speak before, during and after study abroad. Now, can you talk yeah. us through where this data collection fit in the COVID disaster of destroying everyone's data collections? <laughs> yes, it actually took place before COVID. Oh, lucky. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I actually had a sabbatical as well before COVID and that helped me with the with the data collection for this. All right. Well, maybe let's let's come back. Let's come back to the paper. I, I kind of wanted to frame this a bit with with our own personal experiences because we were scheduled to record the podcast a few weeks ago, and yeah. that was right before I was going to go to Singapore. And people listening to this, this is going to be published much later. But um, I thought it would be kind of nice to have this conversation after I had returned from Singapore. For me, this mm -hmm. is my first time. This was my first time leaving and returning to Japan since. 2019, 
I think. Yeah. So around four years. And then before I went to Singapore, I was seeing some pictures of you with your study abroad students where? In Australia? New Zealand? Uh, New Zealand. Yeah. All right. Well, I want to start with you. Um, was this the first crop of students that you've taken taken abroad since COVID? Uh, yeah. So actually, I, I don't take students abroad. Oh, okay. Um, what I do is I work with uh, Todd and a team of people where we kind of, we, uh, we, we negotiate. So Todd Allen, who is one of your other interviewees on the podcast. Mm-hmm. So we, we, uh, we kind of, we negotiate the academic program. We make sure, so the students go for, uh, an academic year abroad. Okay. Um, where they, they have various destinations they can go to. It's, it's based on the, the Japanese academic year, really. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they, if they go to uh, an English-speaking country like uh, New Zealand or Australia or England, America, that they begin with um, skills-based courses in like a language school affiliated with the partner university, where they usually, if they they reach a certain level of of language ability, they can then uh, take uh, undergraduate courses for a semester at the at the end of the year. Mm-hmm. So that's it kind of in a nutshell. And so it, uh, we went to New Zealand. It actually did coincide with students just arriving in New Zealand because uh, their academic year begins, uh, I think they started beginning of February, and we went out roughly a week or two after the students arrived. Um, but the reason for going was we, we've got partner, partner, a partnership with Auckland, a, a well-established one with them, which is going going well. Uh, and we've got a new partnership with Otago, uh, it's at the south of New Zealand. Uh, we we actually started that partnership um, during COVID time, because at that time we believed wrongly that um, Oceania would be the the easiest place to send our students to. Okay, we were wrong because. Uh, as you as you know and the listeners know new zealand and australia they actually locked down quite strongly and mm. uh, whereas america and england which seemed to be harder hit by covid they they opened up much faster mm. so um but still um yeah it's a good partnership and it was it was good to go to otago and see how their program is running and uh, make a few tweaks uh, so that we can improve the program for our students so you didn't spend that much time interacting with your students? A little bit of time, yeah, to just see how they're getting on. Um, students in Auckland found that it was uh, very, very expensive there. Mm. Um, I guess Auckland is quite ex- an expensive city anyway, but I think now with the the, the weak yen and um, inflation around the world, it, it's definitely a problem for Japanese students. Um, the students in Otago, um, they were just really, really happy to see us. And uh, I took them some Japanese sweets over and they were really just getting so excited. <laughs> yeah, it was nice to see. I, I think they do get excited when we go and visit them. And it's one of the pleasures of the of the job. Do you have any perspective on, you know, kind of pre and post COVID students going back. I mean, I feel like the trends nationally in Japan mm. and I, you would know more about this than me is that the, the desire to study abroad has decreased in your program. Have you noticed that or? 
Well, well, our program is kind of self-selecting, really. They they choose our faculty. So I'm in the Faculty of Foreign Language Studies. Mm-hmm. They they choose our faculty because they know that it's a compulsory study abroad program that's integrated into the degree, mm. and um, they can finish the degree in four years. Whereas um, if it's not a tightly integrated program like that, then if they do, they it's very hard to do a full year academic year abroad overseas Hmm. so um you know university programs that don't have this kind of integrated program like we have i guess students have to maybe limit themselves to maybe one semester or a few weeks abroad to be able to complete their degrees within four years Hmm. which seems quite important for many many Japanese students, they want to finish in four years. Yeah. So, so yeah, our students are quite self-selecting. They, they've, they, 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 they know, you know, they've, they've, they know the risks, they know the fears and, and they do, they do have some worries, but, but they've decided to, to join our university and, and, um, our faculty and study abroad. So, so they, they do want to study overseas, but definitely I, I did notice with, um, the students who've just left or, or, or who are about to leave that I, I taught in the previous academic year, I, I did notice that they were, they were a lot more concerned. Um, they had a lot more worries. Than, than before doing, COVID? Than students before COVID? Compared to students before COVID. And I think probably one of the things is maybe um, previous cohorts, um, they'd had the chance to do study abroad when they were at high school. Right. Whereas uh, because of COVID, these students had missed that opportunity. So it's much more of a, a challenge for them. Yes. Right. What about what about you? Um, I know you you had, you'd taken a trip last year, but let, let's focus more on on this year. Yeah. And I and I have my own opinions as, as well on, on my return from Singapore. What, what's your general view about traveling again and leaving Japan and coming back to Japan? Do you, any shifts in perspective or any observations so um yeah i I think uh well so i i went to australia last year and uh i actually got covid in australia Mm. or well maybe i i caught covid before leaving japan to go to australia but the symptoms didn't really come out until i arrived in in australia so so i experienced um failing the pcr test oh twice Wow, and that that was extremely stressful because at that time we needed to take the PCR test to return to Japan. Right. So, um, yeah, and and then I so that was for study abroad when I was trapped in Australia, and it's quite worrying because you don't know when you can come back. Right. Um, so my advice to listeners is definitely get good travel insurance. Make sure you have that when you. I think that's really important. That's something I never really concerned myself about in the past. Mm. Uh, but I, I do feel more anxiety now about things like that. And so, yeah, the, there was that issue. So then I, I went for some data collection in Europe after that as well. And I was extremely nervous about failing the PCR test again because mm. it was soon after that trip. So th- those two trips last year were quite um, – they were quite stressful really due to that worry of not being able to come back to Japan. Mm. Uh, whereas now – I would say that's been removed, but it's just the the cost of flying mm. is a big problem. I think it's it's extremely expensive now. Yeah. Um, if people are flying from Japan to 
Europe, for example, we can't fly over Russia due to the their invasion of Ukraine. So we, the, the flight is, uh, I think, it, how long is it now? It's it's much longer than it used to be. I think it's 15 hours or 16 hours, I think, to Europe, whereas it used to be 12. Oh, wow. So it, it things like that. So it, it makes it a lot tougher and then um, and, it, and a lot more expensive. But at least that PCR requirement has, has gone now, so it's easier to return. How, how about you? I mean, you were going to, you went to Singapore, didn't you? So I guess that was... Yeah. And in case people are wondering, that's a tofu truck driving by my street. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do you have those in in Osaka? I can't hear your tofu truck, but I can hear oh. some uh, some construction going on in the distance beyond me. You can't hear that, can you? Oh that's no, okay. no. Okay, that's good. Yeah. No. Um, so if, anyway, if you hear that that sound, there's there's a it's saying uh, it's it has some song about tofu, and it says oishiyo, which is it's, it's delicious. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm I'm not really convinced by that. I've never been a fan of tofu, to be honest. But I've never bought tofu at the back at a back of a truck either. So we might we might be wrong. That Maybe might be it where it's oishiyo. at. Maybe it is delicious if it's from a food truck. Yeah. <laughs> Mm. um yeah so this is the first time i i I left and came back to japan in a while this is the first time i've been to singapore a your point about the flights being much more expensive back to america are so true now the the flights to singapore i I, seemed okay seemed reasonable Mm. um Mm. so maybe just because it's in this in this region and the fact that the PCR test has so the way the law is, it's not that hard to leave Japan, and so I think mm. you'd probably agree with that. Even yeah. last year, right? <laughs> the yes. issue, the issue yeah. is coming back, right? So, Definitely. Um, Definitely. And so, what it is now is you can put your vaccination history on the app, yes, which you're probably familiar with, and. Yeah. And so yeah, so that that stuff was a bit lessened, and um. I don't. I don't know if this is fortunate or not, but I did get COVID last August. Right. So you're not. You're not the first person who told me the first time they get they they experienced the symptoms of COVID was abroad. I know a few mm. people that happened to. Mm. So for me, I was kind of less worried about that because I felt like I already got it. Um, I already got the vaccination, so I was kind of less worried about that. When I got to Singapore, the well, even before I, I did a connecting uh, flight in Korea, and I noticed mm. that a lot less people wearing masks inside okay and again this podcast is going to be released later but i think what march 13th in japan japanese government said it's optional right okay um is that true so what do you do you know the law is it just you can you don't have to wear masks anymore essentially in japan i i I heard that as well but Everyone still seemed to be wearing masks when I got back into Japan. It's it's quite a it's quite a culture shock actually. Yeah, I I I I got back I got back a couple of days ago um, from another trip that was to England, and and then I uh, I went to a, a Cub Scout event for my daughter yesterday, which was Sunday, mm-hmm. and I cycled there in a rush, and then realized on the way, oh no, I forgot my mask. Because so, oh, I'd, I'd been wandering around mask-free mm-hmm. uh, these two trips abroad. Like, uh, you, you, almost, you just forget COVID existed. Mm-hmm. Um, when I saw my students in New Zealand, it was, it was really strange to... 
I had some of my students there that I taught last year, and it was hard to recognize them with their masks off <laughs> in New Zealand. It, it, it's it, it's strange. It's a really strange experience. They look so happy and smiley mm. with their masks off. Right. Um, I'm sure there'll be some studies coming out in the near in the near future about how masks affect uh, people's confidence or anxiety levels and things like that. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> when I was in Korea, I noticed. You know, people had their masks off indoors, which was kind of yeah. a shock. To, and I'm not saying I live in a bubble. I know the rest of the world takes their masks off. But for me, it was just kind of, oh, that's interesting. And mm. then when I got to Singapore, I was still kind of, I don't know, I wasn't really ready to take it off, but the, it was a lot hotter there. Yes. So it took me a yeah. little, it, it took me, a, I don't know, a day or so to really get used to taking it off. Yeah. And every now and again, I'd put it back on. You know, there's some people that wore masks in trains and stuff. But overall, yeah. I think that was a very big cultural um, experience yes. where yeah. I that's what got me down the train of thought where, and this is something I felt when I came back to Japan, I just felt that people are much closer to each other in mm. Singapore. Mm. Now, A, it could be masks. B, it could be this is a multicultural area where there's people from China and India and, and you know, all over the place. Everybody speaks English. Everyone seems much more relaxed. It's the, the thing I miss most about America is just having a casual conversation with someone, you know, small mm -hmm. talk. Yeah. It doesn't really happen in Japan. Right. And from my own research, you know, this, this, the effective silence on teachers, I, I start going down the rabbit hole of, distance right whether it's mm. defined by your role or your hierarchy and the, these defined roles in japan are so strongly enforced right. through effort and it's just and that that I, there's a there's a connection to your paper which i can talk about later but that was the one thing taking the mask off um i was in a hotel there was japanese there was indians there was china they were from all over the, everyone mm. had their masks off everyone seemed kind of relaxed and calm people are just casually talking to each other yeah um it was interesting to see Japanese abroad kind of just fitting into the whole vibe. Yes. No one, they I didn't, I mean, I could tell they were Japanese just because I, I, you can kind of tell, but yeah, it wasn't like this thing where, do you know what I mean? It was just really sort of melting pot. I, I know what you mean. I mean, when, when I was overseas, I mean, the, the last time, just, I mean, often in Japan, because I think the Japanese guidelines have been for a while where you, you don't need a mask on outside. And, and I, I would, I feel... I feel very strongly that it's quite pointless to wear a mask outside for stopping COVID, like in the fresh air. Right. So, so for quite a few months now, I've been mask-free outside, and then when I go into a building, I put my mask on. It's like a habit. Yeah. I put my mask on when I go indoors. So when I was uh, when I was in New Zealand and in England, I just kept feeling like a that kind of urge to put my mask on whenever I went into a shop or something like that. So it, it's, it's kind of a strange feeling, but, um, yeah, I, I, I do think our students, I think they, they want, I think they want, I think, I don't know. I, I think there's a, there are different people have different feelings, but I do think there's a strong sense among many students. They, they've had enough now. They want to take their masks off. I think that that's my own personal feeling from I, the students that I talk to. I had a student uh, do a really interesting presentation about this whole idea of, of masks in Japan. And her, her hypothesis was that it's going to take about a year after the government, when she did the presentation, there was no mm. impending government decision, but she, her, her, she kind of thought 
that it would take a year for Japanese society to um, take the masks off. And I guess there's data, there's surveys that a lot of Japanese people prefer the mask, A, because mm. they, they perceive themselves as better looking. Yes. And uh, B, maybe, again, the, the fears of COVID. Mm. And C, again, this idea of distance, right? I, mm. I, I'm just kind of, and it could be a bias because I'm researching this idea of distance and how mm. silence can be a source of stress to teachers because of the distance. Yes. And again, from the student perspective, distance can be provided as a show of respect. Right. Right. So like right. you're, you don't. So for example, one of, one of the findings that I had in my pilot study, students did not, there was a few instances where students did not want to engage with me on one-to-one talk in front of their friends. Right. When I was trying to give them assistance. Yeah. And they would, they like, I would go over to, so I would, you know, the class is doing something and I see one person that's really confused. I go over to try to help them and they would respond with silence mm. and it would kind of bother me. And then yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd leave and then I'd see them ask their partner for help. <laughs> so, <laughs> and I kind of researched that, that incident and like, what, what did it mean? And I think the point is like, they did not want to receive my help in front of their peers. Whereas yeah. that same student, if it if it was like in your office or something like one to one with with sure. no students around, they'd be fine. Yes. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um. Anyway, so. All right. So then I get to Singapore, and it just feels much more relaxed. I think just total, just a general feeling of. The, not every social interaction needs to be this big kind of formal. And I, yeah. I don't I don't want to speak in platitudes here. Of course, there's you know. Uh, you know, I don't want to overgeneralize, but that was my that was my ultimate feeling. Coming mm. back to Japan feels much more tight, and I think it just goes back to these d- defined roles. And I could understand after reading your paper how students could have this feeling that they feel more free to to speak mm. overseas, and maybe their ability to speak and their capacity to speak and their willingness to speak you know, goes up. Yes. But you come back to Japan and you're faced with that reality of this intense social pressure. And, you know, like you mentioned, the hypersensitivity, hypersensitivity to others. Yeah. And it can really just put a lid on everything. And that, that was one of the findings from your paper that I really kind of latched onto was the idea that one of the participants was saying, well, a lot of my, my comfort, comfortability was happening outside of the classroom. And even overseas, right? So the idea that there's this classroom pressure, um, it's just a a really, I'm glad you kind of highlighted that because I just feel it's an overarching thing in Japanese society and you just feel it. Uh, And I'm not Japanese, right? I just, you feel that, I felt that social pressure much harder this time coming back than I've ever felt before. So maybe I'm just more aware of it now. That's interesting. I I actually felt quite comfortable coming back to Japan. I I felt, yeah, I felt like you were saying before about the silence outside, outside the classroom at the the beginning of the interview, like it it can be quite comforting. Whereas uh, in the classroom, it's quite stressful. (laughs) I've I've come back. I mean, we're not teaching at the moment. It's during our, our break from classes. But um, yeah, for me coming back to Japan, I felt I felt quite comfortable and and back to Japanese service um the, the way the Japanese do things I just feel really really comfortable with it um I I 
I, I'm some, I'm not often in the mood for small talk. Mm. Um, I probably change as a person. I, th- I think, I mean, we, we talk about, I mean, my study talks about the study abroad, like how it can change students, how it can change their perspectives. And I know for me, moving to Japan, I, I know I've changed as a person. I'm, I'm very different to how I would be if I'd stayed in the UK. So, um, so yeah, I, and I think that's one of the changes. I, I'm much more comfortable with with uh, silence, but I, as you know, I also like to have a laugh and so on as well. So, yeah, but I'm a bit complicated like that, I guess. I, I guess it's with people I don't know um, so well. I'm much more comfortable to just say nothing if there's nothing to say if I don't know them. If I'm with friends, um, like talking to you, I'll I'll babble away and you've got to shut me up kind of thing. But um, with people I don't know, I'm quite comfortable with silence now. Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. I, I feel after living in Japan, I, I've been changed as a person. Yeah. That's why I was kind of surprised to hear Diwale say that mm-hmm. your personality is a trait. And yeah. I, just, I just totally disagree with that. I just don't know how you can prove that. Because personally, I would say... When I was younger, I was much more extroverted. Yeah. And I was totally flipped. Hmm. And is that totally based on Jap? Maybe it is. And so maybe he would argue, well, no, you're, the circumstances around you, you know, coerced your Or I don't know if that's too dark of a word. Do you know what I mean? I, I think, to be honest, I think psychologists, they're, they're always going to argue about things. Always- <laughs> <laughs> I, think, uh, I think the neuroscientists and so on, that they're much more likely to find some agreement, like by cutting open the brain and right. measuring electro- electronic pulses in the brain and so on. But the psychologists, they're, they're, it will be an eternal argument whether it's uh, nature or nurture right. uh, influencing people. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I'm not going to step into this debate. I, I, I skip around the edges of psychology, but I, I, I'm very wary of getting of dipping into it too strongly because um yeah it it's 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 a it's a difficult one isn't it i think i mean you did you did psychology didn't you for your uh, yeah there's um for a bit there's an interview when people are listening to this there's an interview on the website with uh dr jared cooney horvath who's a neuroscientist yeah and we briefly have this conversation yeah and he he, he pretty much echoes what you just said right um right because I was framing some sort of argument that I had. I think it was a Diwale argument again. <laughs> and I was bringing this up like, well, this is where I was coming from and this is where he was coming from. And I was, and I started to make, make my argument. And yeah. then he actually sided with Diwale, but for different reasons. Right. Because of the way, it's kind of like what you said, like the way he's looking at the argument is totally different from a neuroscience perspective, mm. which is really refreshing. So I think if people are interested in, in that, that they might they might like that that episode um but even even the neuroscientists yeah. i think they would admit that the, the brain is malleable and and the brain changes based on what we consume and so on so i i think they they might even they could even be persuaded that the brain can change yeah. as well yeah i i mean yeah. just just uh boys growing up I know, but that, that actually they might just say that it's, it's biology as well. No, I'm not going to go down this road. I'm not going to go Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a neuroscientist either. Yeah. Um, but yeah. it's – so 
going back to your point about yeah. being comfortable with Japan. So, have so have you been to Singapore? Actually, on my my trip back from England, my second trip, I was forced to go through Singapore. Um, British Airways, um, in their brilliance, managed to have a delayed flight from Manchester to London Heathrow. So I missed my uh, connecting flight with JAL. Mm. And then I was forced onto a, a British Airways flight to Singapore. Uh, and then I had to fly, then fly from Singapore to Tokyo and then back to Osaka. So I had a big diversion because of uh, uh, missing my flight. So, yeah, I, actually, so a few days ago, yeah, I was in Changi Airport, but I didn't visit Singapore. I have been to Singapore in the past as well. And yeah, it's it's a it's a great country. I, I love Singapore. Yeah, so but I, I want to go back as a as a tourist, not as a transit passenger. Yeah, I think for me, so th- I have not done a lot of traveling. Actually, I haven't mm. been to Taiwan. I haven't been to Vietnam. I haven't been to Thailand. I haven't been to Cambodia. Mm. Um, I've been to Korea. I've been to Hong Kong once. Um, this was a very interesting experience because I used to live in Sydney. And it just kind of felt like a very Asian version of Sydney, like the downtown circular key mm. area felt like yeah. um, there was a laid back atmosphere, which I appreciated from the America. There was this idea of all this great food, which is very Asian to me, which yeah. I liked. Um, uh, the public transportation I thought was super easy to get it's around. Yeah. And, um, and so all of these things. So when I got back to Japan, it was less pronounced, this idea. I think I kind of take Japan as a package. Mm. So you, you have this you have this idea that, okay, Japan's a tapestry, right? So, okay, there might be one thing that annoys you, but if you pull on that string, it's going to take away something else. Like I kind of take Japan mm. for what it is. Mm. That there's things that annoy me about Japan that I think are su- superfluous, that are, you know, not needed. Um, mm. But then it's like, well, how, how can this exist then? Maybe this is all part of the package deal. And so... When I came back to Japan this time, I was on the train back from the airport and there was this really loud announcement that was going on for about 10 minutes <laughs> and no one was listening to it. It was totally unneeded. It was just this blaring announcement talking yeah. about the doors opening on the left and the, and, and, and I just yeah. thought, what the heck is this? Yeah. Like, I don't, no one's, why is this? So that kind of, and I, and I kind of thought, well. I don't remember any blaring loud announcements in Singapore. And then, and people are kind of running into me in Japan. I was only on the trains for a couple, couple yeah. minutes. I was, and I thought, this is weird. I don't remember one person running into me. Yeah, and, I found that too. That, that's true. I found that as well. People um, rushing so much. Yeah. And then the food. Okay, great, mm. of course, in Japan. But the food was great in Singapore. So it was one of the, it was one of the first times when, you know, I come back from America. I'm just, oh man, Japan's so clean. And people yeah. are... Uh, so quiet on the, the transport. And I did notice that sometimes people would be talking loud on a bus, but then mm. they would kind of notice you and then they'd move to a different area of the bus, which I thought was nice. It was, there was, is that in Japan or in Singapore? In Singapore. Right. Um, so this was the first time where I, I kind of, Japan didn't stack up like it normally does when I come back. Right. It wasn't, it was interesting. It was, and I, I kind of see how Singapore is, why it's kind of the hub of Asia in some ways, right? It's, um, I think Singapore as well is quite well-ordered too, isn't it? Yes. It's quite a well-ordered society. It's a, li- a little bit more maybe top-down, 
uh, like through the rules, very explicit rules, whereas I would say Japan is more implicit, mm. kind of bottom-up rules, like watching each other and making sure, you know, you, you kind of fit in in a way. So, um, so I can see why um, you've got a more comparable, I mean, and like you said, it's a fa- fantastic, it's very clean, Singapore's very clean. They've got yeah. a fantastic infrastructure there. So, so you're not going to get annoyed by some of the things that you might that might wind you up in 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 the West, right? So, yeah, I, I can I can see, yeah, why you might then feel more irritated coming back to Japan than you would if you came back. I mean, when when I when I go overseas, um, yeah, I probably shouldn't say this, but it, it usually reminds me why. I'm living in Japan. Yeah. Usually I feel more confident that I, I chose the right country to live in. Yeah. Um, I, I think, you know, maybe again, cause I'm studying this, this idea of distance and silence and things and, and we can, let's tie it back into your paper now. Yeah. It's just, I, I can really empathize with students, how they feel in the classroom. Cause I do, feel, I'm more of aware of it now, especially after coming back from Singapore just the definition of roles in the classroom is just this overarching thing. And I, I can understand how a Japanese student can study abroad and then come back and just feel like, well, I'm going to have to act a certain way in the classroom. Cause I don't know. Have you ever traveled? Yeah, I, with, I think that I yeah. think they have to like undo. So like in my, in my study kind of it, cause it's quite longitudinal. So it, it I, I don't think there are many, as far as I know, I don't think any other studies have done this where um, if you imagine that study abroad is like an intervention where they're going to change, they're going to have like a very unique experience that's going to make them a different person, their, their mindsets are more likely to change. Uh, so that's why I looked at their experience using um, retrospective kind of speaking, capacity to speak graphs to look at how they were from their school days in Japan. Mm. And then I interviewed them based on, on that kind of learning history when, when they could speak well or when they couldn't speak well during their school days and during the time at university at Kandai and then uh, study abroad. And then I interviewed them again um, one year later after they finished the study abroad to see what, if there are any lasting effects of, uh, of the study abroad. And, um, yeah, so before, you know, during their school days, they're, they're kind of used to the, the the yakudoku kind of system, the grammar translation style where, where the teacher is the source of knowledge. The teacher and the textbook are the source of knowledge. And it's kind of like transmission-based teaching. It's like transmitting the, the knowledge to the students for them to, for them to learn. And it, it's quite a big change for them, really, then, when they, when they go overseas and then they they see a different learning style um much more kind of interactive where um the the teachers are encouraging the students to speak out and the, and the source of knowledge comes from the students and that's that's praised rather than frowned upon and they can make mistakes and that's encouraged like you you learn from making mistakes so there's a kind of like a shift in mindset there as they see their their classmates speaking out and they see a different style of of learning and they they realize they can speak out and that, that they won't be criticized for an opinion that others disagree with or uh, their pronunciation being wrong or 
grammar being wrong because they're seeing their classmates from, I don't know, uh, you know, Brazil or China or wherever talking that way. So they kind of they seem to settle. That's it's it's quite good, I think, when they go to like a language center like that, and then they're they're with other international students who are also learning English, and it's kind of like a, almost like a buffer period, like a, yeah. where they can start to settle and become comfortable in the new country, um, because the two participants in this study, they did seem to settle quite quickly and develop strategies for that classroom. Uh, with other international students, especially, and they found that, you know, speaking to Chinese or Koreans and so on, who have uh, similar, a similar cultural background, they could, they could get on well talking about anime and, and, uh, and K-pop and things like that. So they could quite easily make friends with them, but they, they found real difficulties then outside the classroom, uh, communicating with so-called native speakers, the, the local monolingual anglophones who uh, have got no idea what it's like to learn a foreign language and they just speak in their normal slang to them. Mm-hmm. So there's a kind of a clash there. And and these students on, on my study, they, they kind of, they began to adapt to that. They began to, they, they slowly developed strategies to deal with the native speakers as well, the, the L1 speakers, the anglophone speakers. Um, and and they were improving. And then they came back to Japan. And like you're saying, they've got to then readapt to the Japanese culture again. But um, they did seem, they seemed comfortable because they were linguistically secure. They had things to say. But um, the problem was, if their classmates spoke Japanese first, I think they didn't want to stand out mm-hmm. using English. So they would follow what their classmates did and they would they would speak Japanese. But if their classmates spoke English, they would speak English. So I, I think if they have a, a very strict teacher who enforces like an English-only policy, I think these returnee students, I think they prefer that. Yeah. Um, I think um, prior to study abroad, maybe it's more acceptable to have more kind of translanguaging or code switching where you switch between uh, English and Japanese, the target language and Japanese to support them. But I think when they've returned from study abroad, I think they really need, uh, this is my own personal opinion anyway, I think they really need stricter teachers then. And I think they need classes where they, they don't want to be studying any more grammar or pronunciation or anything like that. That's just going to bore them to tears. They're, they're going to be so demotivated by that. Instead, they want classes where they can work on projects, uh, research things they're interested in and do presentations and discussions in English. And, and that that seems to work really well for them, as long as you encourage them that it's English only and you, and you make sure that they do that. Um, one other change was with the international students as well. I, I, I found... Um, one participant, she found that when she was with, for example, German students uh, in the classroom, she was overwhelmed by their their knowledge, their power to debate about uh, politics or international affairs. Mm-hmm. And she felt that her own opinions were inadequate. And I think she would feel this way even if the discussions were in Japanese. But then 
uh, when she was in the dorm, like because she was in charge of uh, looking after international students in an international dorm, she would hang out with them and be laughing with them and getting on really well with them socially. So it is, like you say, it's very, very important to look at, like you're doing with your teachers, uh, to look at both inside and outside the classroom because uh, this student was called Kumi in the study. Kumi was... Um, it was almost like two kumis, like the, the kumi in the classroom and with international students and the kumi in the international dorm socially. They're like two different people. She could laugh and her personality could really come out with British and Germans and other other nationalities socially. But in the classroom, she, she went really quiet, really silent. It's really hard for her. Um, the other student, uh, Yumi, was... Uh, Kind of similar. Uh, she she uh, became an international buddy, so she helped. Um, I've forgotten the nationalities. I think Vietnamese and Korean. I think it was, and one of them um, spoke English but no Japanese, and the other one um, spoke Japanese but not English. So as you do, she just adapted. And to the student who spoke strong Japanese but no English, she spoke Japanese, and to the other one, she spoke in English, which. Uh, Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? In the in the multilingual world we live in, you you kind of I, adapt, don't you, to yeah, the speaker? I kind of want to go back to one of the points you made about how how important it is for the teacher to make rules, right? Yeah. Um, and I just keep coming back to that over and over again about how you know after you do studies about silence or something like this, that that's just a huge thing where the, mm. the teacher's responsibility to to make clear expectations for student behavior because yeah. that can really help students that are being limited by the hypersensitivity issue. Right. Yeah. But that's easier said than done. Yeah. It's just because as you know, living in Japan, we, yeah. we are, we are not Japanese. We are not, you know, we're expecting, you know, even if you make those expectations, I, I would love for someone to teach me how to do that, to go back to one of your papers, please teach me how to teach. Like, yeah. tell me the right way to do it that it's actually going to work because you can say it and then it's about mm. an issue of enforcement, right? And, yeah. and then it's about an issue about how tired you can be to try to enforce it depending on your students, right? So yeah, it's easier said than done. I, I think, well, well, my own style with my own students and of course, everybody, they have different contexts and, and when you're teaching, I mean, in Japan, I mean, people listen to this podcast in Japan Maybe most of those people are are teaching uh, compulsory English classes to non-English majors. Yeah, that's me. So I, I should give that proviso before I say this. I, I'm teaching English majors who are very keen to do study abroad. So um, what I, the advice I give might not work with, for compulsory classes to the same degree. But what I always do is I, I give them a lot of time. I put them into, and I think a lot of people do this anyway, so it's maybe not such a revolutionary thing what I'm saying, but put them into groups or into pairs to to discuss and answer the, the question. And and so during that time, they might, uh, they might speak some Japanese, um, but they're going to be kind of testing out the language with each other, testing out their opinions. But beforehand, you say to them, Every single group is going to have to answer this question. You're going to have to give an answer after the discussion time. So they know they've got to produce something at the end 
at the end of that period. And the utterance that they give in English might be very short. It might not be very good, but um, they've been given the chance uh, in a pair or in a group to to think about it, uh, to check that they they feel right, to be validated with their opinions, to check that they sound okay, and then they've got that they've got that extra confidence then to to speak out after that period. And they know if they know they must speak at the end of that, then generally they will speak. I think they will be they'll be ready for it. The, the, do, do you do that in your classes? Do you? Yeah, I mean, I I try to do. I, I try I try to do that and sometimes I try I, I've tried some other things as well yeah. um but I think the the concept is that there's that the thing that I resonated with me about this paper is that that's sort of like that social pressure upon return mm. that's 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 a really hard we we can do our best but I don't know if we can we can we can totally negate that right yeah. Um, right. Because I felt that strongly on return. And another another thing I wanted to, to to touch on, I think there's two things going on. You mentioned that idea about the students who were studying abroad struggled with the linguistic aspect of speaking to native speakers, right? Right. But you also mentioned in the paper this idea of struggling with the spontaneity outside the classroom. Yeah. Like you, I think you mentioned the the woman going to the grocery store or something. Yeah. And then you you said as a pedagogical implication we should introduce spontaneous language in the classroom. Mm. And I think that, again, that kind of resonated with me coming back to Japan about it's almost like the society's scripted. Yes. There's this, there's these behavioral patterns that people are expected to do. Mm. And that's not really a linguistic issue. I mean, it it could be right, Mm. but it's, it's a different sort of, it's this idea in Japan, people are conditioned to act a certain way and everyone kind of knows the rules. Like it feels kind right. of like a script. So when someone they they and they 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 reported that in in your in your findings that they mm. went out they they started to get used to the classroom norms mm. and they started to get comfortable with that, but then they go to a grocery store and 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 it wouldn't go to script. Right. 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 <laughs> so I thought that was interesting. Yeah. It it, it it's uh, yeah they they've got to throw themselves into it haven't they, they it, it's only through experience that it, it's really hard to prepare them for that isn't it um knowing when to take a turn it's, it's really hard to know when you can grab your turn when you can when you can speak um, um when now go, going back to the other thing about what what you do in class there's this one thing i was trying last year where mm. i was trying to put pressure on the individual for the sake of the group so what i would do mm. i would I, I would have them speak in like pairs for a little bit about a question. But when I'd go over the answers, I would ask individuals. Mm. And I, what I'd say was, if you don't know the answer, you can say pass. Okay. Yeah. But we'll keep going until someone answers the question. Right. And so when, and then when we all answer, the, when the questions are all done, then it's like free time or, you know, it's mm. class is over. One of the, and and if we finish early, then we finish early, kind of right. thing. Yeah. To try to give them some sort of incentive. Yes. So I found yeah. that kind of did work over time, where you can say pass, mm. but now you're kind of putting pressure on the next person. Yep. So it, <laughs> so that way it's the reverse take, pressure. Yeah. Good so idea. it's taking the pressure off of the person trying to stick out by giving the right answer or speaking confidently. Yeah. It's actually it's like if you do this, you're actually helping your class. Yes. So I was trying to experiment with that kind of dynamic 
And I found it does, it, it did work as far as getting faster responses. That's an excellent idea. That's a really good idea. Yeah. So I, I, like was, that. I, I was working on that. It kind of totally reverse. It's a kind of reverse psychology. Reverse thing. psychology. Yeah. It, it's great. You're turning it around. So they're doing a favor to others by just saying something. <laughs> right. And speeding it up. Yes. Uh, there's another one. I think it's, uh, his name's Shay or, or Shay. I, 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 I could give you the reference later on. Um, he talks about, um, getting students to all stand up at their desks and then you read out the questions and then if they if they answer a question i think they can sit down or their row can sit down something like that so it kind of encourages them to to finish the activity so that they can they can sit down um so it's kind of like a compulsory way not wanting to be the one left standing up at the end and so mm. on it, it it sounds it all sounds very kind of brutal in a way like these psychological tricks playing on the students but i i have found through the research that a lot of students say that they they want um the teacher to nominate them they want the teacher to force them to speak a, a lot of a lot of students i think it's when they reach a certain level of english and they're feeling uh, that they can say something, but but they're worried, like, if it's voluntary, that they'll stand out for putting their hand up and speaking. So they actually want the teacher to introduce these kind of interventions that make it a bit more compulsory. Yeah, I don't yeah. I don't really elicit responses anymore. Yeah. I always just ask. I, I have the name list in front of me, and I say yeah. someone's name. <laughs> yeah. Dictatorship is the way. It's the best way, yeah. <laughs> In the classroom. <laughs> now, get your democratic roots and, yeah. <laughs> now, this, this paper is interesting because you differentiate the concepts between capacity to speak and willingness to speak, but yeah. you kind of open up this new possibility for future research, I would say, where mm. where does it start to intersect back to willingness to speak, right? Because I would... I would say from from reading the paper it, it seemed like their capacity to speak mm. was increased and their willingness to speak was increased abroad but maybe yeah. their willingness to speak i don't know if that increased coming back or if, if, if or if it like decreased on return to japan you know i, I mean? think in the case of kumi for definite kumi had a high willingness to communicate a high desire to speak but she was held back by her classmates. I actually taught her. Um, I, she was in my seminar. Um, so it's a very small class. And I could see by her eyes, she wanted to speak out, her and another student, but she was with some other really quiet students in that class. And she didn't, it was quite clear, and it came out in interviews as well, that she didn't want to speak out and just be, you know, like be the kind of urusai one, the, the, the noisy student that just answers all the questions and and takes over the class. Um, and the, another student was similar to her. That, so they, they, they had that kind of, um, so the, what's the reference? I think it's uh, Deng and Peng, is it? I think talk about uh, capable, but capable but silent i think it is no peng sorry peng 2020 i think this is in the um the silence book mm. that we talked about earlier um i think she was like uh, very 
she was what we'd call capable but silent. She was she had that kind of or or yearning yearning but silent. Like she she really wanted to speak out, and she had the answer there. So if I were to nominate her, she would speak. But um, it would just end up that she'd be the only one speaking in the class. Um, so definitely there was that desire there to speak, or at least speak to me or speak to her classmates. But she felt she felt dragged down by the uh, the silent classmates. So it, it's it's a tricky one, isn't it? And the the other thing about the paper is one of the participants mentioned motivation to speak as a result of taking the ACAN, um, mm. like a, a verbal speaking test. And yeah, I think that's the other big thing, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, yes. Connecting speaking assessments it, in Japan, it's really got to be a nationally, a national thing. Cause mm. that's where all the motivation is to, I don't know. That's a topic yeah. for another day. Um, well, I, I, I do. I mean, that was one thing that surprised me actually, because I, I was coming from like a very kind of speaking background. I, I've never been one myself. I mean, I studied French, I studied Japanese. I, I'm not keen. I'm not that keen on learning grammar. I, I just like to go out and just speak. And mm-hmm. you know, my Japanese is terrible. It's just full of grammar errors. But I just, I just speak. And I, I've and my research as well. A lot of it has been how, you know, grammar, like being too too obsessed with grammar and pronunciation, can hold students back. Mm. But um, the interesting thing was that, that came out of the study as well. I probably don't make enough of this in my conclusion or anything. But um, like you said, like by taking these tests and passing these tests, it gave them confidence to speak more. They they actually. I mean, some of the participants that aren't mentioned in this study as well, they they felt that they they needed once they reached certain grammatical levels, they they seemed to feel that gave them more confidence to to speak out. So, um, quite interesting that as well. Even though I'm quite critical of of grammar, I think people should just speak and go for it. Uh, the these students from the background they've come from, they they felt when they when they achieved certain levels then they could go out and speak so there's definitely a place there for grammar and testing and uh, improving their speaking um, having speaking tests with uh, with Japanese students again though it it needs more research it it was a kind of a surprising finding for me actually that I I uh, yeah there's only so many words you can write (laughs) in a journal paper right so because I I feel like that is the future direction of this paper whether you do the research or not, mm. you know, you talk about gradually introduce less structured activities in the class, right? You know, yes. get them yeah. out of this scripted kind of nature, right? So yeah. that seems like that would work if it's if it's designed into some sort of assessment. It's almost like True. that's the way it's got to go, right? Where, you know, we want yeah. them to do this, but they're conditioned really not to do that. So unless it's like, well, okay, well, I'll practice for this test and the test is kind of non-scripted in nature and, you know, then you have to practice stuff like that more, which is kind of counterintuitive to the way they've been conditioned. Like you said, like the transmission approach in junior and senior high school. And it's just, it's, it makes sense. It would, it would, but if you introduce this test and, hmm. and say, well, that's interesting. I have to do this. I don't know. Maybe it can I th- work. I think Hong Kong. I think Hong Kong did that. I think Carlos wrote a lot of things. Uh, and I think in the nineties, uh, he wrote a lot about 
Hong Kong, they they introduced a new curriculum with with uh, more speaking in it. I think he he evaluates the effectiveness of of changing the testing, changing the assessment, and mm. and and how it affected them. But Hong Kong is a, a very different context, of course. Like they they've got that kind of um, there's the old kind of colonial British influence there and so on. So maybe it could work better there than in Japan. I think we just have to do things gradually with, with the students really. Um, Mm. So we don't, we don't overburden them too quickly. We have to take our time with them and uh, different students will progress at different rates. So it's hard, especially like, as I said, if, if it's a, if it's a compulsory subject, You've got to bear in mind that they're taking English to pass a test, and they they might not be they might never use English when they when they graduate. Yeah, they, I guess it was more centered toward your participant who who struggled outside the classroom abroad. Mm. And those yeah, not- for me, yeah, it works. For, I think for me, yeah, for my my students that are going to do study abroad, that we should definitely do this kind of thing to prepare them for study abroad yes right well i know you gotta you gotta get out of here pretty soon do you have any sort of final thoughts or do you you have some future directions you might try to pursue or uh so my future direction what what i'm working on now is because i i've one strong finding that came out from this like as i mentioned earlier on is the the fact that um there's kind of a big focus like too much of a focus on on native speakers um and i know you you talked to Devale about this in an earlier podcast as well about native speakers and uh we in our, in our university we our, our study abroad program we've got quite a unique uh kind of program it's called the dual language study abroad program where oh right they, yeah yeah you talked about that on the last interview i think yeah. Oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I talked about it in the last podcast. I think. So I'm, I'm going to do more on that. So that, that last podcast, I think I talked about uh, in Taiwan. Um, so it's coming out very, very strongly. I think that that students, um, I mean, there's this huge kind of multilingual kind of English as a lingua franca, um, English as a medium of instruction and so on. It, it, these kind of projects that are taking place. And I think there's a lot, there's a lot to be learned there from how how students, um, their capacity to speak can uh, be influenced by speaking to, um, like studying, say, in France and speaking to French people in English or mm. in French. And and that's what I've been collecting data. I've been collecting data on students in France and in Germany. So I'm quite excited about that. I'm going to, I take a long time <laughs> publishing, but hopefully, um, yeah, I should uh, produce something like maybe yeah next year i hope based on that i've collected the data i'm I'm still i'm still um going to write a bit more on on these students that have been to english-speaking countries as well with the capacity to speak but and I, i'd like to just kind of tie it together in some kind of some kind of model that kind of um maybe that might be more useful for researchers and teachers to think about um what kind of factors might influence students' capacity to speak? So um, I'm thinking of that as well. But um, yeah, yeah, um, I, 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 you kind of said it like it's a bad thing. I, 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 when I read your your work, it seems very thoughtful and um, and uh, you know, it, I know some people you know 
push out a lot of work mm. every year. But um, I think over time, you, you'll always be measured by quality, right? So, right. Yeah, um, thank you. Yeah, I don't think yeah. that's anything to be. Um, I don't know if that's like the British uh, <laughs> uh, uh, modesty thing, but I, I think that's a. I think it's. A, I think it's a good thing. I, th I think in Japan we, we're we're quite we're quite busy, aren't we? With lots, of, we, we we teach a lot. I think it it was a it was Jim McKinley, wasn't it? The, he he did the plenary. I don't know if you saw it at, at Jalt last he was year. At, he was at the Relk as well. Yeah, he, it was quite inspiring what he said about um, people working in Japan because we we often see it as a as a kind of a negative thing that we we have. Uh, he had a, a broad perspective because he he'd worked in Japan and now he's I think he's in in the UK or somewhere like that yeah. teaching in the university. So he'd experienced that like 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 we have where we're teaching a lot and we have lots of extra duties that limit our time to research. But he was pointing out that it's actually quite good because we're kind of on the front line. We can um, collect lots of data, uh, real classroom data, whereas maybe um, researchers in in other contexts they're not in they're not in touch with the students as much as we are. Actually, seeing how they how they um, the struggles that they go through learning English. So that that can be quite a good thing. It means it's harder to publish a lot. It it takes a while, but um, when we do publish, we can. We can have some quite good perspectives, I think. Yeah, people working in Japan. It was kind of funny. I don't know if I saw it on something that you liked on LinkedIn, but I saw some graph about kind of what a PhD means, um, <laughs> and it's like a circle, right? And there's a little small little dent. Oh yes, yes. Um, yeah. I like that graphic, and there was this, there was two sentences in your paper. Yeah. One sentence was the findings from Jim King's book in 2013. Yeah. And the next sentence was kind of relating it to my findings in 2022. Right. And it was right. like two sentences <laughs> with the amount of work, you know, you know what I mean? So it was kind of funny. It was, yeah. you know, you do, it's just how funny how, you know, I don't know. I don't yeah. know how that, I just read that and I thought it was kind of funny when, we, and we, it should we, be, it should be synthesized into yes. how it can fit into a paper. Yeah, I just thought, well, there it is. That was that was my contribution, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> that was Jim's ninety hours of uh, observations. <laughs> there it was. Yeah. yeah, but but you've got you got the citation in there, so so I, I hope people um, check your citation in my paper, follow up, and and they read it, and then they can see that see it in more detail i hope i synthesized it well enough <laughs> no i no i thought it was i thought it was and i thought it fit well with the previous sentence too so yeah. um yeah. it just kind of made me maybe chuckle a bit we, we we've, we've got we've got these connections i think we're both heavily influenced by by jim king's work and and seiko harumi's work um and and yeah you, you you're influenced by dat bow as well of course i, yeah. I think uh, it's interesting. I think I think when we when we first met years ago at Jeltz, neither of us were researching silence, and suddenly we've both converged that way by people we've met, spoken to, and speaking to each other. It's interesting, isn't it? How we how we develop. Yeah, I'm I'm I I do a lot of readings of Jim King. I think I've read everything he's ever written. Yeah, and now I'm kind of. And I was impressed with him before, 
Hmm. Um, but I think as I've learned more about the topic, I'm more and more impressed with him. Yeah. Because he seems like, he, I don't know, I'm reading stuff he wrote te- like over 10 years ago, right? And so right. He's, he's way ahead of kind of, he was way ahead of the curve, I would say. Yeah, and 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 I have to say on on a, on a personal note, I mean, I when I did my sabbatical, I I was uh, I was burgled, my car was stolen, and I was living in a house where having problems with a landlord, a, a dripping ceiling, and he was trying to get more money off me and so on. I, I was feeling I had really high anxiety at that period, and um, and Jim was in England at the same time. We were talking to each other, and and he was really central in helping me to overcome my anxiety the best i could really really good guy really influential yeah yeah Yeah, well that's um i guess we can we can end it on that yeah yeah and uh, again the paper is fluctuations in japanese english majors capacity to speak before during and after studying abroad and some of the chapters that we mentioned of course are in the book east asian perspectives on silence in english language education Dr. Simon Humphreys, thank you so much for coming back on Lost in Citations. Thank you for having me back. Thank you. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages. Please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.